you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You want to ask me why? Why? Well, so I'm buying a house tomorrow, so that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, but maybe more importantly, it's uh, it's my birthday today, Dave. Oh, happy birthday! Thanks, thanks. Yeah, so I'm celebrating, uh, celebrating right now. I'm celebrating by recording a podcast. Yep, yep, yeah. Like I'm like you don't have other things on your mind right now. No, no, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So somewhere between celebrating my birthday, packing up my whole house, uh, and and of course running assiduously through the the raft of news that was generated this last week or so. Um, I decided to take some time out, talk to my good friend Dave about the, the yep. goings on. Yep. Catching myself nice. up. Grounding myself, actually, is yeah. a nice way yeah. to put it. So did you get any good presents? I did. My dad was good enough to send me a Raspberry Pi. Nice. Nice. Not yeah, that... this, this, this episode is like chock full of Raspberry Pi goodness. That's right. The, the kind that plugs into any USB port, not the kind that you eat. Necessarily, right. Necessarily, right. Yeah. Uh, so thanks, Dad. Nice. Happy nice. birthday to me. Uh, unfortunately, I, gotta, I still have to go out and buy the SD card for it, so I haven't done anything useful for it. But it's sitting on my desk right now. It's taunting me. Yeah. It, oh, it, yeah. That happened to me where it's like you got like when I got mine, I was like, yeah, I got it. And then you got to buy a case. And then you got to buy a power cord for it, and a SD card. And then I'm I'm like rummaging around through all this old equipment I have. And sometimes it's an old power adapter that looks like it would work, but it doesn't. And it's not the right amperage. And yeah, it's fun. Once you get it going, it's great. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, it's funny. I, I was traveling this week, and uh, I was tempted to bring it with me so I could tinker around with it. And then I realized that the TSA might frown on this janky-looking piece of electronics hanging out of my bag. <laughs> yes. It's like super suspicious-looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, how was your week, Dave? Any headlines? I, I have two. So one is that since last time we talked, uh, family saw the uh, Star Trek movie. Yeah, so yeah. It, my daughter was so excited. She was sitting next to me, and um, when the Enterprise came on the screen the first time, she was just, like, trembling with excitement. She had a big smile on her face and everything. So that was, like, money well spent uh, to see her so happy. That's awesome. And, and then the other, the other thing that I don't know if this is good or bad is that – so I got on my, my usual trip to D.C. this week. So I'm at Canton Akron. I get, I, I get on the parking lot bus. Um, to to go to the airport, and uh, bus drivers like, hey, so it was six thirty in the, or no, it was it was like about probably five thirty in the morning, and he's like, oh, so uh, where are you going? And and I'm wearing my uh, sport coat and slacks, and I'm all dressed up and you know ready for business. And he's like, and I said, well, I'm going to D.C. And he's like, oh, are you a politician? <laughs> and what did you say? After a long pause. Uh, I, I was just, you know, I'm like, no. And, and I, I didn't thank him, but it was like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, you know, maybe he thought cause I was dressed up. Hope, I, I don't know if he was trying to compliment me or what, but I, I don't know. Um, but, but you, should, the, you should have said, you should have said, check my lapel. There's no American flag. So obviously I'm not a politician. <laughs> well, get a load of this. I get on the plane and, and guess who gets on the plane with me? Oh, oh, sweater lady. Yes, and who else? I I don't know who else. The mayor of Akron. No. Yes. <laughs> so the bus driver could have asked him, "Are you a politician?" And, and he would have said, "Why, yes." 
Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was my week. Excellent. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, Dave, we got a ton of stuff here. We got uh, New York City released some open source code. Uh, we got the Free Software Foundation has jumped the shark. Uh, we got, we're talking about patents, a whole bunch of stuff about patents. Um, we got a, this, oh, this really cool security event uh, that's yep. coming up uh, that we're, we want everybody to go to. Uh, I'm looking at, even the notes for this are like 3,000 words on Raspberry Pi. Uh, yes. We're going to talk about uh, Red Hat Summit, uh, the longest word in the German language, yes. right? Um, yes. Duck, uh, this is going to be a great show. There's a ton of stuff here. All right, let's, uh, what do you say we get cracking? Well, we're, if people want to learn more about the show notes and how to spell the longest word in German, where, where would they want to go? Oh, sure. So they go to dgshow.org. Uh, D as in Dave, G as in Gunner, show.org. Uh, and you Excellent. can also check us out on iTunes, right? Yes. Yep. And also, what what's on the uh, cutting room floor this week? Oh, geez. Uh, there was a ton of stuff on the cutting room floor. Um, we start with, uh, oh, we're the number one hit for alliteration and vampires on Google. Yes. Which is great. We're wonderful take, accomplishment. It's a great accomplishment. We're taking over the internet one keyword at a time. Yep. Uh, so all you alliteration and vampire junkies, uh, you will be sent straight to episode 11 if you Google for that. Uh, also, there's a some developer was able to pull off an implementation of VNC over GIF using mm-hmm. 86 lines of code. Yep. Uh, talking about the uh, and the Atari video game burial site. Uh, yep. So check out those links. Those would be great. Okay. Are you ready? I'm strapped in. I got my seatbelt on. Yep. My, yep. Tra- my, tra- my trade table's up. My seat is upright. Uh, what do you say we get started? Yes. Yeah, let's do this. So what's, what's new in the news? Uh, well, the headline for me, actually, there are a lot of headlines this week, but the big headline for me was uh, New York City released a piece of open source software. Mm, okay. So this is called uh, the NYC Checkbook, and it's a tool for uh, financial transparency. So people can go online and check out the New York City Checkbook website and be able to see how the New York city budget is going, uh, which is, it seems so simple that when I first heard about it, I was actually surprised that it hadn't been done before, Hmm. but it makes perfect sense. Uh, I should be able to pull up my city's budget and see how they're doing against their accounts. Right. Uh, it's, Hmm. it's our money after all. Uh, but New York city did the, did the extra step, uh, and, and they deserve a lot of accolades for this. They went the extra step and actually open sourced the software so that other cities could take the software and do exactly the same thing. Nice. So yes. ne- next time I'm on the plane with the mayor of Akron, I'll bring that up. You should absolutely bring it up. Uh, yeah. And so it's nice to see the barrier for entry for this stuff get lower uh, because yep. this is something obviously that every city uh, would benefit from. And a huge shout out goes to uh, our uh, friend of the show, Carl Fogel, mm-hmm. uh, who in addition to being just an outstanding gentleman, uh, is also a huge open source uh, and open source and government advocate. Uh, he literally wrote the book on building open source communities, uh, and uh, his company is now helping cities do exactly this kind of thing. Uh, so good for Carl, uh, and uh, good for New York City. Nice. Thanks, yeah. Carl. Yeah, thanks, Carl. Yeah. Uh, Dave, security. We got, we got security news here, I see. Yep, yep, yep. Good news and... I guess other news. So um, I guess one of them, so we're all about passwords uh, this week, a little bit security. Uh, one is at LinkedIn, they added two-step verification, which surprisingly you would think they would use something like uh, standards-based 
authentication, but they're using SMS sort of like Twitter again. So uh, good news that they're doing it, but you know, eh. yeah. But that's that's the news there. But um, the other thing that we saw from a password standpoint is this came from our uh, good uh, friend at Red Hat, Will Cordes. Hey, where, Will. Uh, yeah, hey. So he sent out Nars technical link that uh, talked about uh, passwords where some hackers got in a room. And I, I can imagine, you know, they're sitting there with their ski masks on typing. Um, <laughs> just like the clip art. <laughs> yeah, right. It's just in, and in real life. And uh, they were able to uh, just brute force these really complicated looking passwords. And uh, one of the things that, you know, you could read the whole story. We'll put it in the show notes. But uh, one of the things to note was that they were able to easily crack these really complicated passwords um, because they were, well, you know, one of the reasons is that they're using uh, weak password hashes, uh, that, that w- they were encrypted with weak password hashes. So um, the, the whole moral of the story there from, uh, from, you know, for me is that uh, even though you come up with the most strongest wonderful password in the world, if you're the server you're authenticating against does a poor job of protecting the passwords and the hashes, uh, you don't have much control over that. So... Um, you know, two-factor authentication uh, will will definitely help, uh, but also having you know strong security like FIPS uh, certified security is always a good thing. Um, and then I, I, let me ask you this, Gunnar: Is what about things like uh, where you could instead of creating an account on a website, you could log in with your Google account or a Facebook account or Twitter account? How how do you feel about that? As is that better security, or what th- what do you think? Yeah, uh, well, maybe right. So. It freaks me out uh, to think that I'm giving – so it freaks me out on a couple levels. Uh, First of all, there's the all the eggs in one basket argument, right? If I'm using my Google account to authenticate to anything, all somebody Mm -hmm. has to do is hack my Google account and then the show's over. Yep. That's one way of thinking about it. Uh, The counter argument to that is that if somebody hacked into my Google account, it's game over anyway. Yes. Um, Yes. And your Google is uh, using the one-time passwords, which is pretty good. That's true. That's true. Uh, Google's done a great job with uh, the two-factor authentication, so it's actually one of probably one of the more secure accounts that I have. Um, on the other hand, I, best ca- you know, best not to trust anybody in the first place. But philosophically, I also am freaked out by the idea that one company or one organization is going to be my source of identity. Yes, I get super uncomfortable with that. Uh, so, actually, Dave, I've used. Do you have an Open ID provider? I I have seen it. I haven't. I haven't tried it yet. Yeah. So so it's becoming less popular now, uh, yeah. mostly because it's uh, so complicated to to actually implement. Uh, but yeah, how do you, how do you explain that to your parents? Yeah, I, you, yeah, I don't. Yeah. Uh, so there, yeah. So there you go. There's the they <laughs> Open ID yeah. just failed the litmus test because I. I wouldn't dare explain it to my father and mother, who are who are very smart people, by the way. Yeah, uh, but they they're worried about other things. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but you know, so open up what what Open ID though is it solves this problem by allowing you to set up uh, a whoever you want as a provider of your identity or somebody who can vouch for your identity. So the idea is you go to your Open ID provider, you log into them, and then. Uh, tell the third party to go talk to your open ID provider. And that allows you some additional controls. Like, you know, yes, give them my first name. Yes. Give them my last name. Yes. Give them my email address, that kind of thing. And you can Mm -hmm. kind of control all that from, from one point Uh, in theory. Great in practice, really 
too difficult to implement at the moment. And so unfortunately for a lot of people, I think they rather use their Twitter, Facebook, and Google accounts. And it's worth yeah. mentioning, Dave, that Twitter, Facebook, and Google, who seem to be the most popular providers of identity, mm -hmm. uh, they're not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, are they? Mm, probably not. Probably not. Uh, probably they're getting some extremely useful and lucrative information about which websites you're visiting and authenticating to. So that yep. freak, that freaks me out. Well, and and the other part too is even at, like I see things like with Twitter, uh, and it's it's not Twitter's fault necessarily, but if you log into some of these accounts that with a, a Twitter account, uh, sometimes it'll say it'll give you the permissions of oh well it wants to see who who your uh, people are that you're following and who's following you. But there's also um, this app can tweet on your behalf, and right. and that's where it's like the hair goes up on the back of my neck, and you know <laughs> somebody's you know you get some robot spamming all all the people that you follow, which to me would just totally erode any sort of credibility that you brought up on on Twitter with with having some robot tweeting on your behalf on why their product is great or you know that, that just scares me. Yeah, yeah, and should and it should. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um... Let's see. Speaking of credibility, yeah. uh, so the Free Software Foundation yep. has started this campaign against Regulations.gov. Yeah. So what is Regulations.gov? So Regulations.gov is the repository for federal regulations, right? Seems okay. kind of self-explanatory. Uh, so they've got this website. Um, in order to log a comment on a particular regulation... Uh, you need to your web browser needs to run some JavaScript to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, the FSF uh, is of the opinion that this is uh, a bridge too far. Uh, this is a step over the line, and that because the JavaScript that's being executed is not explicitly labeled with an open license. Wow! And so yeah, so they want everyone to go beat up uh, the people working on regulations.gov. Uh, until they license their JavaScript because their JavaScript is not free. Wow. So, Dave, I, I am, I'm reluctant to throw rocks living in this glass house of mine uh, mm -hmm. because I know I can go down some serious ideological rat holes when it comes to openness and freedom and choice and the rest of it. Um, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows kind of how kind of nerdy and inside baseball we can get with this stuff. But yep. If I were to throw a dart, I could probably hit a much more interesting target for yep. FSF. Uh, I find it really strange that they chose this particular facet of this particular website. And it's double strange because regulations.gov is, in fact, a government property. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, as I understand it, there's a really good chance that regulations.gov is, in fact, public domain. Uh, and, right. there, and therefore requires no freedom, no explicit license, free or otherwise. Right. Uh, anyway, the whole thing's just, just really, really strange. Uh, and I know there was some talk about it on Twitter. Uh, if somebody has an argument for, for why this is the most important item on FSF's agenda, I would love to hear it. Um, I'm, I honestly have an open mind about this, but on its face, uh, this seems like a super silly waste of time. Yeah, they well. If people have a, a good argument, they should you know let us know in the comments and or tweet us and all that. Uh, yeah, it, that's my wonder. Is that there are so many problems in the world that and and is this the the the, the best and most efficient use of their time right now? Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, so it's so you know it's funny, Dave. That you've got you've always had two camps, uh, and here I'm not going to talk about the free camp versus the open camp, right? Uh, there were yes. all these there were all these arguments at the turn of the century about you know whether free software or open software, or it's Linux or GNU Linux, and all the rest of it. All that's kind of not especially interesting to me. Um, I don't or, or constructive, or sometimes. or constructive either, right? Um, yeah. But it it is interesting to see open source and free software evolve over time and they they're each growing into a kind of maturity of their own right mm -hmm. um open source is moving into the enterprise uh mm -hmm. in a way that uh in a way that it, it, it it's now widespread right um open source is in fact driving a lot of like the major changes in the industry right now with cloud computing and uh, mobile and so on um and so it's interesting to see what the navel gazing in each of these communities looks like, right? So yep. uh, I think setting the Free Software Foundation's campaign against uh, JavaScript with ambiguous licenses on one end, and then this article by Monty, uh, yes. founder of the MySQL project, on the other, who wrote an article saying that open source is dying uh, because he is unable to... Uh, muster an effective business model for his uh, MariahDB project. Wow. Uh, now, both uh, both ends of these seem like hysteria to me. I don't know, Dave, am I wrong? I mean, this seems wacky, right, to declare that open source is somehow dying Yeah. at the same and time it, that it's so wildly successful. It, it's weird to me. Yeah, but it's not like there's ever going to be a company that is like a pure open source company that can do like a billion dollars worth of revenue, though. Yeah, that's it. That would be impossible. That's yeah. that's crazy town. And uh, yeah, it's dying. Yeah. All right. So open source is dead, Dave. We better we okay. better we better go find another. You want to wrap this up? Yeah. Let's just uh, let's wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> We've decided. Yeah. <laughs> well, so Dave. In fact, we, Dave, we may have to wrap this up uh, unless uh, before we get, we get the the takedown order. Before we get the takedown order, because we are being attacked. You're being attacked right now, Dave, whether you know it or not, by these... Uh, I, by I these, feel it. By these patent trolls, right? Yeah. Uh, this yeah. is the big news this week. Um, and I don't even know where it started, but there was... It, there's all this... I think it was with the podcasting, right? That's where it started. Um, mm -hmm. Some guy who has a patent on some method of distribution of audio ended up being able to parlay that patent, which is like back from the 90s, into mm -hmm. an attack on podcasters. And so he started uh, issuing uh, basically ransom notes uh, to podcasters. And interesting, he only chose commercial podcasters and not the nonprofit podcasters. So he's not going after the NPR podcasters. He's going after the independents um, and like the comedian Mark Marin, who's probably got one of the most popular podcasts on the planet, uh, and but who does it out of his garage and makes no money at it. Right. Um, so he's so he got a he got an order or he got a letter I forget what's the term a letter a demand letter I guess it's a demand oh, letter oh cease and desist or, or maybe a cease I don't know I don't know thank God I'm not a lawyer uh, yeah. but so anyway so Mark Marin gets a threat uh, a number of other podcasters uh, like Jesse Thorne uh, over at Bullseye got a threat um, and so uh, the EFF uh, thank Lord for the for the EFF uh, they've actually started a campaign uh, to protect uh these people being attacked and try to invalidate the patent that this guy is now waving around yeah uh, which is really cool yeah uh, so everyone should go and contribute to the effort uh we got a link to the uh to the eff campaign in the show notes 
Um, and then, Dave, there was some other news uh, on the patent front, and extremely well-timed, it seems like. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about that. <laughs> I see. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Uh, <laughs> so the so the White House uh, really like days after. So the news came out that this guy was attacking the podcasters, and pretty soon, major podcasts like This American Life, uh, Planet Money, they did a whole like forty five minute segments on the sorry state of the patent system, uh, and then. Uh, uh, an explanation of kind of what this guy's about and what he's trying to do and why it's all perfectly legal, even though it seems really shady. Uh, and just a couple of days later, the white house issued uh, basically declared war on the trolls and said mm-hmm. that they were going to be advocating for some uh, executive and legislative reforms uh, that were going to make life super unpleasant uh, for patent trolls, uh, which mm-hmm. is really exciting. It's very cool. Well, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So it looks like, uh, you know, we're starting to see some headway there and, and it's the executive branch isn't, uh, uh, the only part of the government that's, that's helping. Right. Um, yep, the, yep. a customer we like is also, uh, uh, help, uh, looking to help resolve this too. So on one hand, people believe that the patent and trademark office is actually at fault for a lot of these patents because the PTO is overloaded with patent applications and they're letting kind of slapdash patents through the system. Uh, giving people a an unnecessary and undeserved amount of amount of power uh, mm-hmm. over other people in the marketplace, uh, so the PTO gets dinged on this all the time. On the other hand, the PTO is actually doing some really interesting and innovative work to help them process these uh, uh, help them process these these patents. And so they they're, they teamed up with a, with the crew at Stack Exchange, which is like a question and answer site, and they have. Uh, it's at patents.stackexchange.com, and what they're doing through this Q&A tool is assembling prior art uh, to mm-hmm. help invalidate some of these patents. And there's actually a link in the show notes to uh, the kind of collective effort to invalidate uh, this podcasting troll. Mm. Um, so uh, really cool. I really like the idea of, and it's a really efficient way of of kind of clearing out the system, is by systematically going through the... Uh, going through the patent applications themselves and, and finding reasons to invalidate them, basically taking the weapon out of the troll's hands. Yeah. Uh, and it's a lot cheaper to do that than actually go into litigation. Uh, that's for sure. Um, so kind of exciting. Uh, so the, uh, there's a similar effort uh, that the PTO has as well called peer to patent, uh, which is another kind of crowdsourcing effort. Uh, and the mm-hmm. idea here is that those, the patent examiners couldn't possibly have deep enough knowledge for of any particular industry uh, in order to effectively evaluate a lot of these patents. And so they use this peer-to-patent program uh, to solicit help from the public and say, this guy invented this thing in 1996. Uh, can anybody show this thing having existed before 1996? Uh, and if you can come up with the prior art, boom, you're done. Uh, and, the, and the patent doesn't get validated. This is pretty clever. Pretty clever. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. So with that, what what's going on? What what are some of the events we got coming up? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, I did want to point people to a really interesting interview I did with uh, the folks at Phase Two, uh, mm-hmm. which is a they're kind of a, a, a development shop, a, a web development shop, and and they're they're best known for uh, building Drupal sites. Uh, so Luke Fretwell of uh, FedScoop and I 
did a, a it was a really interesting interview uh, with uh, two of the guys from uh, from Phase Two talking about the how Drupal has evolved in the in especially in the federal government um, over the last few years. Uh, anyway, really interesting interview, uh, and I really enjoyed it. So you should everyone should go check it out. Um, and now, Dave, yeah, y- you know how I love the word cyber. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You use that all the time. Yeah. So we're gonna cyber. We're gonna we're gonna cyber secure ourselves, right? Indeed. At, yeah. the end, at the end of the month, I got it. Where is it? Yep. Mark your calendars. Uh, yeah, <laughs> June twenty sixth. We'll, we'll get all cybered up. Um, God, yeah. I hate that word. Ugh, yeah. it drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, we have a defense in depth workshop that's uh, sponsored by Red Hat in Tyson's Corner. So that's uh, June twenty sixth, uh, which is a Wednesday, and uh, we for we're going to have a lot of uh, a bunch of the the sessions that are being. Uh, presented at the summit, uh, we will be presenting at uh, this workshop, knowing that a lot of our government customers have travel restrictions. So this is our chance to bring a little bit of the Red Hat Summit to our, our local customers in the D.C. area. So you can check that out. We have, uh, we're have we going to talk about SCAP, um, the SCAP Security Guide, uh, the STIG. We, we're going to have uh, folks from DISA, the NSA, presenting uh, NIST is presenting. I'm, I'm moderating a lunchtime panel, so this is a, a power-packed uh, lineup that we have, and, and we'll have the registration link. It's uh, how how much would you pay to attend a, uh, an event like this, Gunner? I take all of my money, Dave, uh, yeah. and I and I just bought a house, so so that's wow. basically not, like not much left. Not much left. <laughs> yeah. Well, good news for you. It's free. So it's, oh, it's free. perfect. Great. Yeah. Government people. Uh, 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 commercial people. It's everybody's invited. Awesome. How open yeah. sourcey of us. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So uh, speaking of defense in depth and cyber, yeah. um, we have some other good news to announce, right? We do. Uh, the STIG, uh, the Secure Technical Implementation Guidelines. Uh, the STIG for Red Hat Enterprise Linux 6 is out. It is official, uh, and we'll, we have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, so if you are in the DOD and you are trying to set up a RHEL 6 system and your, uh, your DAA is giving you a hard time about it, uh, you now have official hardening guidance uh, for mm-hmm. RHEL. Uh, so go, uh, go check that out. And so now that we have the STIG, and the, it, so what's cool about this, the STIG this time around, Dave, is you might remember how long it took us to get the RHEL 5 STIG. Right, mm-hmm. that, was, yep. that was years after the initial release. Is we got it. So, well, turns out we weren't the only people to have this trouble. Uh, DISA um, obviously can't be experts in everything, and so what they've done with the STIG process now is they allow vendors to work together with government to develop mm-hmm. the guidance, and then they hand the guidance over to the DISA FSO to uh, validate it, and then it gets mm-hmm. turned into the official guidance. So, what we did, you know, most companies throw 10 engineers at the problem uh, and out the other end pops guidance and then they submit it. Uh, but we're Red Hat, right? Uh, yep. We're the billion dollar software company. So uh, I'm super proud of this. Uh, we, uh, Sean Wells, uh, who's been working on the SCAP Security Guide project for some time now, he uses the SCAP Security Guide project to collect a community of government users who develop the hardening guidance themselves. Uh, so it's experts from Red Hat, experts from government getting together to build actual, useful, practical hardening guidance. And that's what we submitted uh, to DISA-FSO. So it's a huge success story. Um, really proud of the work, really proud of Red Hat doing it in this way. Um, and kudos to Sean Wells uh, for doing a great job on it. 
Yeah, and if and the the key people from for this uh, defense in depth workshop, uh, you know, from DISA, NSA, Sean, will all be there, um, who helped make the Stig possible. So you, if you bring a copy of the Stig with you, they will probably sign it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they'll, they'll autograph it or cryptographically sign it for you if you want. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, we're all excited. We're uh, it's great. Yeah, that is great. Um... Let's see. And some inside baseball news, uh, Dave. We're, we actually OpenShift. You know how much we love it. Yeah. Uh, we talk about OpenShift almost as much as we talk about Raspberry Pi. Yes. And uh, we're actually getting a copy of OpenShift internal to Red Hat, which I'm super pumped about. Nice. Uh, I don't. Do, do you have any ideas about what you, what you might do with something like that, Dave? I don't know. I don't know. I know I'm using it externally. Yeah. Uh, I've been. It's my little you know playground to try out uh, alternatives for google reader um <laughs> but yeah among other things but but sure. it's it's great uh to be able to try stuff out really quickly so that's exciting well so i was thinking what i might use it for is you know we've got a bunch of internal blogs that you can only see inside the wire right and uh what i might do is actually set up a instance of comma feed mm-hmm the newsreader oh, okay. set it up yeah. internal on the internal nice. OpenShift uh, so that I have an easy way to consume all those internal resources. Um, yeah. I think that might be, that might be, that might be pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, uh, all right. What do you say? Raspberry Pi time? Yeah. 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 So uh, take a deep breath. This is going to be a <laughs> long segment. I got to say, Dave, this is this, the article you sent along was so cool. You should tell people about it. Yeah. So, um, you know, all, every, uh, so it wound up that uh, when my daughter and I were at the Cleveland Mini Maker Fair, we ran into uh, somebody from Element 14 who is uh, – he was the community leader for Element 14 who is uh, – uh, Element 14 is one of the, the distributors for Raspberry Pi. And so he's the community lead, uh, one of the community leads there. And uh, he actually lives in Akron and uh, they, the Element 14 has their – uh, one of their offices here, uh, well, outside of Cleveland. So we talked to him for a little bit, and I was I was telling uh, Lauren, my daughter, and I were telling him about uh, what uh, she was doing with Scratch on Raspberry Pi, and he's like, "Oh, wow, we ought to write an article about that and put it on our community blog." So um, we uh, he he did uh, an interview with Lauren, and we put it up there. So she you know she talked about how to get kids into. Uh, programming and and basically it was uh, autobiographical in terms of well how she got started with programming and um, what influences uh, she had uh, to get there and and what what kept her engaged. And uh, the photo of the two of you at the bottom of the article is adorable. Um, yes, you guys with the guinea pigs. You guys couldn't be more tickled. It was so yeah. it's so cool. Um, yeah, it was great. And and Dave and Dave a little bit of the proud father came out. Uh, at the end of the at the uh, end of that interview too, uh, which was great. So I encourage everyone to go uh, to go read it, uh, if only for the warm fuzzy. Um, yep. Yeah. Super proud of Lauren. Oh, and, and you could see the Valentine she made for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The, yeah, ro- so, the robot Valentine. <laughs> yeah. So she wrote me a uh, a Valentine. Uh, uh, so I taught her uh, Bash script programming when she was like nine years old. And over over like Christmas break uh, during the the Red Hat shutdown, and so like, I got this Valentine the next you know Valentine's Day, and she wrote it uh, wrote me a Valentine in Bash. Uh, so you'll see the picture um, in in the uh, uh, in, in the article. So go ahead and check it out. It's I I, I love it. I, I'm looking at it right now. It's sitting on my desk. I still have it. So it's it's great. Oh, that's so that's so cute. That's so cute. So uh, something good happened. Uh, something else good happened to Lauren. 
too. This was yeah, great. yeah. So she applied. Um, so you 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 know this whole maker movement is really exciting. Uh, you know everybody's open up maker spaces and all that. Winds up that Case Western uh, Reserve University um, in in strong engineering school. In and and my dad's uh, my dad's alma mater. Oh, this this is all uh, talking about your dad a lot in this show too. Yeah, so that's cool. <laughs> um, so he'll he'll enjoy this show. He will. Uh, yeah. So so Case Western Strong Engineering School. Um, they are starting up a uh, institute for collaboration and innovation called ThinkBox, and and so it's this right now. It's a temporary three thousand square foot makerspace, um, but it's a twenty five million dollar project. It's moving into a seven story building that has 50,000 square feet, um, making it one of the largest university innovation centers in the world. And it wound up that uh, my uh, daughter, Lauren, uh, got an internship there for the summer. So she, you know, this is a big competition and, you know, she applied, she did the whole job interview thing and, and she got it. So get a little bit, she gets to be a teaching assistant to help uh, the college students come in and, and she gets to use a laser cutter uh, 3D printer and uh, uh, ShopBot CNC router. Oh my God, that's so cool! That is so yeah. cool, Dave. What would you What would you do with with tools like that? I, I, you know, I just thought it's like, well, when I was 14, I like made like a screwdriver and metal shop, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, now, you know, one generation later, it's like you know, she's printing out stuff on a 3D printer. But but what about you? Like, what would a what would a 14 year old gunner uh, make with a 3D printer? Well, see, I don't have to guess uh, because uh, my friend Eric's uh, little man, uh, we'll call him Little G, uh, he, Eric just posted uh, a photo of his son uh, working with uh, a tool called Makey Makey, mm -hmm. um, which is a, uh, what's a good way to describe it? It's a, the way they describe themselves is uh, they provide an alligator clip. They allow you to alligator clip the internet to your world. Uh, yes. So there's stuff like you can play Super Mario Brothers on a banana. Uh, yep. As an example, right? So there's this great photo of Little G uh, with his Makey Makey, and he's actually writing tasks in Scratch, our which favorite. Which we know and love. Which yes. we know and love. So he's writing tasks in Scratch um, and to manipulate, uh, or to allow him to manipulate uh, his his computer using Play-Doh, um, mm. which is so cool. Anyway, there's this, there's this great uh, great photo up there, and, and we'll include a link to the uh, Makey Makey tool uh, in the uh, in the show notes. Great. Um, how yeah. old is he? I see. I knew you were going to ask that, and now I'm embarrassed. Sorry, Eric. I don't remember how old G is. Uh, young, under less than ten, less than ten, yeah. maybe ten. But I, I think when for stuff like that for kids, it's so it makes computers so approachable. Like if you. You know, try to teach them bash. It's it's a steep curve, right? And then also that that cause and effect and that gratification of interfacing with the real world is is too abstract. But like in the case with little G or or Lauren, using things like Scratch, where you could drag and drop, and you could see this cause and effect, and and even where um, you know they're they're taking it even farther by using a makey makey to interface with with the external world, mm -hmm. um, makes it so much more for little. Uh, G and I, I think that it's it's really uh, I, I I bet you he's going to really thrive in that type of environment. It's, totally. it's just to open up the uh, you know ideas of what you could do. So uh, Dave, I'm trying to imagine what our equivalent was. Like I remember Capsella, right? Um, I remember getting from Radio Shack, you know, a, a, one of these 101 piece electronics oh, yeah. kits. You know, with the yep. like you got to stick the wire in the spring and. Mm -hmm. 
you know, make your own, uh, make your own transistor radio and stuff yep. like that. Um, I guess that, uh, that gets close, but I mean, the amount of really the amount of like power that is under the hood for kids growing up today, is just, there's so much more they can do. And the fact that it's bl- a blend between hardware and software is mm-hmm. is pretty cool because what it means is like Capsella, you're limited by the modules that you could get for Capsella, right? Yep. Um, I was limited by the 101 pieces of this electronics kit that I get from Radio Shack. Um, yep. But the fact that this stuff is in software means that the the range of expression for them is functionally unlimited, and it's tied to the physical world, which I think is super exciting. It's so cool. Yeah, well, like one thing they could do is is um, with the Raspberry Pi's uh, poke holes in China's Great Firewall. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you found this link in the register. Um, for basically, is it like a kit or is it? It's like a, it, yeah, it's a it's a it's a kit, right? Um, it's yeah, Raspberry well, it's, it's Pi an that's... assembly. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and it it provides a Wi-Fi hotspot mm-hmm. and. Well, and then I don't know. You t- you talk about what? Yeah, so it's it's basically I guess somebody took a, a Raspberry Pi and a Wi-Fi hotspot and a VPN uh, software, and then they're able to poke holes in uh, China's Great Firewall uh, to get out and and circumvent the firewall. So that's one example of of uh, you know just innovation I think that could happen uh, very quickly. Um, yeah. Wow, that's so cool. That's so cool. Um, and then uh, we're building. Uh, speaking of Raspberry Pi, we're we're building rocket launchers at Summit, right? Yep. Is that, yeah. Is so that there's right? a contest. Uh, there's a one of the cool things, and we'll put this in the show notes too. Is that next? Uh, you know, at the Summit coming up, uh, we will have um, uh, an area where people could hack on Raspberry Pis and interface it with different things like USB powered rocket launchers. And so whoever, and they're going to give away Raspberry Pis to the people that design the best stuff and all that, and um, um, uh, the, the thing that I saw though, was that, uh, uh, employees are not eligible, nor are their, uh, direct relatives. So it's like Lauren and I are disqualified. So I, I can't smuggle her to the summit and, and have her be my uh, proxy. Um, but oh, that's oh well. a bummer. That's a bummer. It's got, well, actually what's going to happen is they're going to run this competition and, and I'm imagining all the Red Hat employees lined up around the perimeter with their noses hanging forlornly over the fence, you know, kind of, <laughs> oh, greatly well, disappointed. Speaking of that, mm-hmm. um, I, so I got Pydora going on, uh, the Raspberry Pi over the weekend with Lauren. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. Cause I'm, I want to install it on my, uh, on my, on my Pi as well. Yep. So uh, it is, it has a lot less packages than Pydora, uh, not Pydora, um, Raspbian. Um, you know, oh, like you it doesn't should, have Scratch oh, pre-installed. You, you, should, you, should exa- you should explain what a Pydora is. Yeah, so Pydora yeah. is the Fedora remix for Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. And so whenever you install it, it looks very much like Fedora, where you have the first boot that comes up and you go through the wizard, and then you have a login screen, and then it runs XFCE. Um, so it's very, you know, if, if you're used to Fedora on the desktop, um, it looks like Fedora, uh, but there aren't as many packages out there, but, uh, but, uh, she and I were playing with it and I was actually, uh, um, Dan Walsh, I was talking to him and, and he gave me some ideas. So you, it, so imagine, um, the little skunk works project that Lauren and I have going, uh, with, uh, Raspberry Pi, Pydora, 
and an idea from Dan Walsh. Ooh, that sounds intriguing. And I'll leave it like that. Um, we, we found some problems, but we're working on When I have something more to report on, I'll, I'm leaving that out as a teaser. But, awesome. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, let's see. So the, the note here in the show notes, Dave says Red Hat Summit 5K. And when, yeah. I sit, when I see 5K and Summit together, I think about that's usually the size of my bar tab at Summit. Is that, <laughs> is, is that what we're talking about? Or? Or, or, or it's the length of the pub crawl. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and and so so you're a runner, right, Gunner? Uh, I run stuff. Is that what you mean? It's... <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not a runner either. I like I get out of breath when I drive. Um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, so one of the things though, it's like if you're going to the summit and you're a runner, uh, there's actually a 5K, uh, which uh, benefits the the One Boston Fund uh, from the you know to to help benefit the families uh, impacted by the bombing. Okay. Oh, um, which again, I to me, it's like every time. This is one of the cool things about life at Red Hat is that whenever there's a crisis that goes on, uh, the Red Hat people rally to uh, find out ways to help. You know, we we have a matching gifts program where, um, you know, I can contribute money to something and Red Hat will match it. Um, and then there are other ones where, uh, you know, where there's a big crisis and and Red Hat corporate wide or or in lieu of say like a holiday party uh, around Christmas time, uh, we would actually instead volunteer at a soup kitchen or or do things like that. So this is an area where um, not only is this for Red Hat employees to be able to contribute. Um, but um, this is a way to get uh, folks going to the summit, and uh, Jim Whitehurst will actually be there. Um, oh, so you could great. you could run alongside our uh, CEO uh, if you'd like to. So <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah. that's really so cool. go, go ahead and try that out. Yeah, Red Hat's really good about that. They were I remember it was like my first year at Red Hat, and they let me take a week off to go rebuild homes after Katrina. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was really amazed at the 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 amount of philanthropy that uh, that Red Hat can can do for you know for a company who's kind of let's say relatively small um yeah. in terms in terms of people so um yeah that's great that's great so actually you know Dave, after all this raspberry pi talk um and all this patent talk uh mm-hmm. it got me thinking that so we we're talking about how great it is that like lauren and little g can play with all the stuff and this growing maker culture and i'm worried i wonder if you have any thoughts about uh, kind of these two themes colliding, right? Um, mm-hmm. So what happens one day when you and Lauren finish your secret project uh, and you publish it on a website and you are immediately served by some patent troll? Um, yep. Does that... Do, what, yeah, that that worries me um, particularly, and I'm not a lawyer or a patent lawyer for that matter, but, but isn't one of the big things with patents is to embody something in physical space like you can't patent math or you can't patent an algorithm but you can patent a box that can do cryptography well Um, but you can also patent a business process right yeah yeah um and so that's how most software gets patented as a as a uh, some kind of yeah you're right i don't completely understand like how the stuff gets divided up but um but the fact that you have all of this making going on in the physical world means you're a lot more exposed to some of the stuff than, than you would be otherwise, right? Right. Well, or the other way to look at it is this is an opportunity for people to start doing stuff and start talking about it mm-hmm. to get that prior art out there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, um, so one way that we handle patents at Red Hat is uh, with the Open Innovation Network, right? 
Uh, we mm -hmm. take we we infect file patents, but they're purely for defensive purposes. I know everybody mm -hmm. says that, but we actually mean it. And uh, we take those patents and put them into a pool with a bunch of other companies, and it's kind of like a patent NATO. Uh, so mm -hmm. if any one company is attacked, we can respond with the entire portfolio of everyone's patents. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a kind of you know mutually assured destruction kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, Keith Bergelt, who runs the operation, I heard him talk once, and uh, he was one of the things he advocated for was this idea of uh, uh, was it prescriptor preemptory publishing? I said there was some alliteration uh, in there, some but like a so does it involve vampires? Oh, interesting. Oh yeah, Keith Bergelt's definitely a vampire. Now that I'm thinking yeah. about it, um, sorry, Keith. So, the, <laughs> the, but the idea is to preemptorily publish information about the work you're doing, uh, and kind of making sure it's up on the internet, so that if somebody else comes along later and tries to patent it, you'll have this kind of well-documented prior art. Um, mm -hmm. And it turns out that that is a lot cheaper and easier to do than filing for a patent yourself. Mm -hmm. um, now, I've talked to some lawyers about this, and, and they say that the protection from prior isn't as great as it could be, um, so it's not a perfect solution. Um, but I think it's it will be interesting to see how difficult it is to establish that your idea is novel, given the amount of making going on um, mm -hmm. on all these websites, right, and in all these conferences and in all these maker spaces. Um, it seems like it seems like it's going to be a lot more difficult to establish novelty um, mm -hmm. than, it, than it would be in the past, right? Yep. Yep. Interesting. And you have some public speaking lessons learned. Oh my God. Yes. So I had the good fortune, uh, to speak at an event, uh, in DC this week. Um, and, uh, the, uh, the event was great. Uh, the people involved were great. The organizers were great. Um, so, uh, I don't intend this as a, uh, as a knock against them at all. Uh, but I think it's a, uh, I learned something from it, so I wanted to share it with everyone else, right? Um, so a few things happened. Uh, so first is I was told, okay, you're going to talk for 10 or 15 minutes, right? Um, and I learned about six hours before the event that that was now two minutes. Mm. So that's already hard, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going through, you know, I had like written, a, like a written down speech, you know, many seven pages probably of text, uh, and so I started furiously marking stuff out and trying to figure out how to create two minutes of content out of 15 minutes. Um, and then, uh, we talked to the organizers and tried to figure out how to get more time. And eventually they were good enough to, to, okay. So 10 minutes was now the target. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, great. Okay. So I go back to my speech and I start undeleting stuff and, you know, getting myself 10 minutes of material. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I get to the event and, uh, there were two speakers at the beginning of the event, and then the guy in front of me was uh, uh, Jay Walker, um, who runs uh, TedMed, uh, who is mm. the, uh, these are the medical TED Talks, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and a great guy, and he gave this outstanding speech, uh, and I'm standing there feeling my now four times hastily edited speech burning a hole in my breast pocket, like I, I suddenly get terrified. Um, yeah. That I have like completely miscalculated both the length of time I should be taking, the tone of the thing, uh, all of that. Um, and so then I get up to the podium, and before I know it, uh, you know, I'm seriously panicking, right? Uh, and before I know it, I'm actually talking, and I haven't even pulled the speech out of my pocket. 
Mm. Uh, I'm suddenly launching into the speech and like freestyling, uh, like improvising the entire thing. And probably I probably turned in, uh, and I like I blacked out. Uh, it was probably a four or five minute speech. I don't remember a whole lot of it. Um, I honestly couldn't tell you what it is that I actually said. Mm-hmm. Um, just so much adrenaline running through me. But there were some lessons that came out of this. Yeah, uh, which I want to share. Uh, so okay. for, first is modularity in a speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I had done in my speech, which is, was a mistake, which was I created, uh, <laughs> you won't be surprised to learn, uh, this is Gunnar talking after all, it was this extremely elaborate argument, right, that had this like mm-hmm. massive seven-page arc. Um, mm-hmm. And it was constructed in such a way that if any one piece was missing, mm-hmm. uh, kind of the rest of the argument would fall apart. Oh, wow. Um, and so in retrospect, what I should have done is taken say five stories three stories seven stories whatever it was that together would tell the story that i wanted to tell mm-hmm. um and uh that would allow me to scale up or scale down the speech based on the amount of time i had right um so mm-hmm. if i have these kind of illustrations in my pocket um and then some like canned commentary on those illustrations it will be a lot easier for me to uh, to kind of change the maybe the tone, change the length of the speech. So I think modularity in speech making is probably as important as it is in in software. Um, mm. So so that was the first lesson. the The second lesson is it was a room full of a hundred people, and by the time I got up there, they had been on their feet. Uh, it was like a cocktail type setting. Uh, they had been oh. on their they had been on their feet for about an hour, um, mm. and so they the their patience for a fifteen minute homily on the uh, virtues of open source and open data uh, were probably not going to be well taken. Um, so being able to uh, stay nimble uh, and, and be as brief uh, as, the, as, uh, as the audience expects uh, is probably mm-hmm. the second lesson, right? It's kind of being responsive to the setting, right? I would have been much more likely to give a 15-minute speech if everyone had been seated, right? Yes. Um, so anyway, so like hard-won lessons uh, from out there in the field. Um, and man, public speaking is hard. It's just hard to yeah. do. Yeah, and you're a you're a pro at it, you know, uh, compared to someone that may be a developer all day and then they got to get up at the summit and give a talk and they don't they don't give presentations a lot. Um, but it's even even for somebody that does it a lot, it's it's hard. Yeah, well, it's I, yeah, it's funny. It's you, you call me a pro at it, but all that means is that I get paid to do it. Um, you know, <laughs> well, and you get a lot of practice at it too. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then um, I know too. It's like if you have, if you're given ten minutes to talk, and if you could talk for eight minutes, I think that makes people happier if yes. you, if you wrap early. And so that's something that you know, trying to trying to do that. But sometimes if you have two minutes and you want to try to finish two minutes early, you don't mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of room to uh, runway to get a point across. Yeah, who was it? Roosevelt said, uh, "Was it be funny, be brief, be seated?" Was that? <laughs> Yeah. Is nice. it funny? Wait, is it funny? Is what he said? I don't remember. Somebody, if somebody, if somebody can find that that quote, let us know, and we'll stick it in the show notes. And, uh, and we'll thank you. And we'll thank you very much. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking of speech, uh, Dave, how's your German? Not as good as yours, and and so I think you need to insult the German people again. No, no. For the for the, <laughs> for the I'm already I'm already in hot water. Uh, with those hot-tempered Prussians. Uh, so I think, Dave, that you uh, should be the one to try this word out. Um, okay. All right, ready? Yep, yep. Okay. All right, let me take a deep breath. So this is the word of the day. 
So, uh, Rind, Fly, Shit, Ket, Terungs, Uber, Washungs, Soft, Gabin, Uber, Trigun, Sets. Is that good? That was good. You know, I really like their third album better than the second one. Yeah. 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 Um, so that, that was one word. That's the word of the day. <laughs> um, where did you find this? Uh, on the internet. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. Yep. You know what it means? No. What does it mean? So uh, obviously it means it's German for uh, uh, law uh, for the delegation of monitoring of. Let me do that again. Law <laughs> for the delegation of monitoring beef labeling. Scheiße. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and and let me be clear, that was the word for that. Oh, what does that mean? Means that it's that it is no longer a German word anymore. Oh, what? Well, so yeah. they just it's it's so, formally dropped from the language. I don't know huh. why. Interesting. Yeah, but but I mean, if you're playing Scrabble in German. Yeah, this is the, that's right. That, that's the word for you. You know, I, I I would like to know how many points that is. Yeah, yeah. That's what we call this. Somebody uh, wants to calculate that and let us know. Man, that's like a that's like a trump of a trump of a trump. Uh, that's wait, that wouldn't even fit on the board, would it? You'd need a couple boards, I think. Are, and, there, are there rules for like wrapping around on a Scrabble board? Like, if you go all the way across, can you wrap around and go to the second row? I I don't think. I think it has to fit. Like, uh, uh, yeah. But, oh, maybe it's like a buffer overflow problem, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and and also, um, I that if like you do, it's like sixty three letters, so that's like half, or or it's like half a tweet. Just that word, <laughs> right? Right, right. Well, so what's it, but what's cool about that is that the, well, so first of all, the idea that a lang- that a well a word can be formally dropped from a language, which is like so. Like that would never happen in English. Like we don't do that. Yeah, um, we don't. We don't really have uh, an official body that says what is an English word and what isn't. Yeah, right. Yeah, France we, does. We have like I Urban guess. Dictionary, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, an Urban Dictionary is really more of a, it, to the extent that it shapes the English language, it's really more of an additive thing than a subtractive thing. Right? It's not like it's gonna. It is going to introduce words to the language, but it will never take anything out <laughs> yeah. of the language. You know? um, yeah, I don't think there's like a board of people on, on yeah, no, no board of people on, on the Urban Dictionary that will declare words uh, uh, deceased. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, you know, that's why we were talking about this before the show, and it got me thinking about how, uh, if you've ever seen, there's a great documentary on that was it was on PBS, and I think it's on YouTube. We'll put a link in the show notes called "The Story of English," uh, <laughs> which, if my memory serves, is like a ten part documentary about how English evolved. And, you know, English is like a dog's breakfast of, you know, Anglo-Saxon, German, Irish. Um, and then when it got to America, it got super out of hand, right? We started introducing uh, American Indian words, um, started introducing German, and, and it just all kind of mixed up together. And it's that's always been the case for English. And one of the points of the documentary is that English is winning as kind of the global language, <clears throat> maybe because of, you know, English or American hegemony, that might be part of it, but really it's about the flexibility of English uh, and its ability to kind of adapt to new circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is really interesting in this idea of, like you're saying, the uh, the Urban Dictionary uh, being not a, a descriptive body rather than a prescriptive body, right? 
Um, I don't go to Urban Dictionary to learn what the right answer is. Um, <laughs> I go there to learn what all of the answers are, right? Yeah. Um, and and you could vote up the ones you like the best. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, and that's exactly like the that is literally how the English language works, right? It's actually a lot like open source in that way. Um, there's no such thing as you know some governing body shutting down a particular open source project. Um, it's just some words fall into disuse, and then those maybe go away. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then other words are introduced and they're either embraced or they're not. It's really kind of a f uh, free market kind of thing, right? Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, speaking of language, uh, I think that we've spoken plenty on this episode, Dave. I'm looking at our timer here and we're, we got to get out of here before we hit an hour. Um, yeah, yeah. Dan Reisacker probably had enough to go to work and come home on this episode. Yeah, someday Dan, we're gonna. He, Dan Dan tweeted that he was, uh, he, or he blogged that he was going to uh, uh, fix the Bluetooth in his uh, motorcycle helmet so he could listen to our show during his commute. Uh, and I am looking forward to burning down uh, his Bluetooth battery with this episode. Uh, that's gonna... <laughs> <laughs> great. Uh, all right, Dave. So, what do you say? You want to button this up? Yeah, yeah. So we're if people want to uh, uh, learn how to spell that word in German, where where would they want to go? Yeah, so they're going to go to uh, D as in Dave, G as in Gunner, show dot org, dgshow dot org, which is much easier to spell than that word. Way easier. Um, yeah. And so uh, yeah, hit us up on the tutors, um, and uh, please send in your uh, send in your comments. We want to hear from you. Yeah, yeah. Good. All right. Well, thanks, Gunner, and thanks everybody for listening. Mm -hmm.